and co-laboring together, and it's been a great honor. I'd say the same for you, Victoria. Today's message will segue very neatly and seamlessly into the Eucharist service, which today we are honored to let you know that it will be conducted by our own Pastor Messick, Pastor Brian Messick, who of all people is qualified to do this because he just completed his 26th message on Christ and the Passover, which culminates in some regards in the Eucharist service. So I, I asked him if he would conduct the communion service today. So he will be directing our very capable and faithful ushers, and they will be directing you to the elements, and Brian will be conducting the service and saying some important things leading up to our participation together in this wonderful divine tradition. On this New Year's Eve <clears throat> and this sixth of the 12 days of Christmas, 2022, I bring you a Christmas apocalypse, as I promised, and 21 below zero wind chill kept me from doing it last week, but we will not be deterred. Christmas is traditionally celebrated with a manger scene, as you know, where the little Lord Jesus lay asleep in the hay. And often Christmas is duly celebrated, rightly so, as the incarnation of the eternal word, the celebration of the eternally begotten Son of God becoming flesh. The Gospels, according to Matthew and Luke, <clears throat> are rightly referenced as the accurate records of the event of the Savior's birth and the extraordinary circumstances around that event. In fact, the announcement born to you today is a savior. That is the primary title of our Lord, is savior. He is the God who saves, Yeshua, Yehoshua, Yahweh who saves. And we'll see under three names during this brief address called the Christmas Apocalypse, what that means. These gospels record accurate records of the extraordinary circumstances around that event, including providential occurrences on earth as well as phenomenon in the heaven, a phenomenon in the heaven. And today, we're going to consider the universal implications of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. And we'll do this by considering three identifiers or names that were attributed to him in association with what we call Christmas, and under the identifiers of child and son. He is called child and son. First, call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Look, the scripture says, the virgin shall be with child and give birth to a son. Notice that child and a son and you all will call him by the name Emmanuel this child the Greek word is paideon p-a-i-d-i-o-n I'm not going to write up here because I want to get this all communicated fairly rapidly and this will also be in print this is going to be 
huddled together with a lot of other Christmas messages we've done in the past, which may come out to be a fully fleshed out doctrine of Christmas someday, I think. This child, Paideon, as he's called in Isaiah 7:16, was prophesied to be conceived and formed in the virgin. This son, called Huion in the Greek, was prophesied to be born of the virgin. Also, Parthenos, she's called, He Parthenos. And his name called Emmanuel, or as the Greek has it, Emmanuel. It's almost a straight transliteration. Matthew 123 interprets it very clearly as God with us. For again, Isaiah 7.14 says, For this reason the Lord will give you a sign. That word sign is semeon, S-E-M-E-I-O-N. You'll see that also in print, and that's going to be a significant aspect of our Christmas apocalypse, semeon, sign, Singular or plural is used 15 times in the Septuagint of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. It's used seven times in the Apocalypse, notice that word, of our Lord Jesus Christ, called the Book of Revelation. Notably for our Christmas Apocalypse, it describes a sign in the heavens in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, of a woman about to give birth. A double entendre there for Mary and Israel, she's clothed with the sun, and the stars are beneath her feet, Revelation 12.1. And a second sign showing that the suffering of the Son of God, the suffering of the incarnate Christ, began not at the cross, but at his birth and throughout his life of obedience in this world. He was, a murder was attempted upon him immediately, and he endured the hostilities of, hostility of sinners against himself all the way to the cross where it climaxed. So his suffering included the entire time of his duration in incarnation in the days of his flesh. So the second sign, Simeon, in Revelation 12, 3 to 5, is that of a dragon who crouches before the woman and seeks to devour the child. Of course, that depicts Herod's desire to kill Jesus and his slaughter of the innocent children in the area of Bethlehem. He is the son, however, as this vision says in Revelation 12, this apocalyptic vision identifies him as the son who is destined to shepherd the nations, who is also known as the lamb who is slain with the foundation of the universe. What I've been demonstrating lately, and this is part of a Christmas apocalypse, is that the event that brought forth the universe called cosmogenesis was the event of the cross. They are one. The slaughter of the lamb and the creation of the universe are one. The cross is the instrument of God in the creation of a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. Secondly, after calling his name Emmanuel, call his name Messenger of the Great Intention. This is something we've given a lot of attention to in the past. Pastor Brown has done some brilliant messages on it also. Messenger of the Great Intention. That's exactly what Isaiah 9.5 says. Another famous Christmas verse, Isaiah 9.6. But in the Septuagint or the Greek text, it's Isaiah 9.5. 
and that reads very differently sometimes than the text taken from the rather corrupted Masoretic Hebrew text. Call his name messenger of the great intention. As the child born to us in Isaiah 9, he is purely and completely human. He is the child who in total humility receives the kingdom of heaven, reveals the kingdom of God, and who enters for and with and as us all. You must humble yourself as a child, this child, to enter into the kingdom. God with us is this child. He entered into the kingdom of heaven for us all, and so we all have entered with him, God with us, into the kingdom of heaven. That's universal salvation, in case you're wondering. And so, as the son given to us in that verse, he is totally and completely divine, eternally begotten of the Father as the son of his love, in Colossians 1.12, Matthew 3.17, Ephesians 1.6. He reveals an infinitely loving father. In fact, that's why he was incarnate, to reveal an infinitely loving father. For the only eternally begotten exegetes the unseen God, in John 1.18. And to see him, to see Jesus, is to see the infinitely loving Father. To see the unseen God is to die, according to Exodus 33. No man has ever seen my face and lived. But to see the unseen God in the seen Son is to die and to live at once, to live with everlastingly new life. For Jesus said that the will of his infinitely loving Father is that all who see the Son and believe in him have not only the experience of no longer perishing, but the experience of the life of the coming age now, the experience of being saved, but that they will also be raised up on the last day in John 6.40. It is evident, therefore, that the will of the infinitely loving Father is that all will see him, and therefore that all will believe and that all will be resurrected on the last day to life. In Christ, all will be made alive. That's what the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. It's evident as well that all will believe in him, for the scripture says until we all come to the unity of the faith or in the unity of the faith in Ephesians 4, 13. And that every eye will see him in Revelation 1.7. And that ultimately seeing him as he is in his two natural essence, his two natural essence, T-W-O, natural essence, we all will be made like him in 1 John 3.2. Moreover, that every tongue will confess Yahweh as Yeshua or the Lord as Jesus, indicates a universal confession of faith and not of forced submission. Philippians 2, 9 to 11, and that this is to the glory of God, the infinitely loving Father. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ is to the glory of the Father. The Christmas apocalypse, the birth of the child for us, a child is given for us. A son is born to us, a 
Son given to us. The incarnation and giving of the Son for us and for our salvation for all and the salvation of us all as well as the liberation of all of creation and the redemption of history and of time itself. All of that is to the glory of God, the loving Father, who willed it. This will of the Father is the great intention of which this child, the Son, was and is both the messenger and the manifestation. For again, he is the child born to us, as Isaiah prophesies, and you can turn there if you wish to Isaiah 9, and for us, the Son is given to us and for us. For God loved the world in this way, says John 3.16. He gave his only eternally begotten Son so that none should perish, is how that should be understood. And so that those who believe in him, even in this present evil age, will have some experience of the life of the coming age and experience the loving dynamics of future world where the Son is already unanimously worshipped by myriads of angels, the angels of God who are gathered for the everlasting feast. For there and then there is never a bad time to be in love. I heard that song recently, Grand Funk Railroad. Bad time to be in love. Never a bad time to be in love in the coming age. Until then, until then, until that moment, when every eye sees him, every knee genuflects, every tongue confesses, all are resurrected to life. Until then, there are the perishing and the being saved. This will be a great theme of 2023. The being saved being the new covenant community. So here it is, the Septuagint of Isaiah 9 with some expansion. Most translations in the English has it in 9.6. For a child is born to us, I'm reading from the Greek text, and a son is given, born to us, given, a verb of grace. And of course we find that reflected in John 3.16, God so loved that he gave his only begotten son. 2 Corinthians 9.15, the unspeakable gift of God in Ephesians 4, 7, the gift of Christ. So a child is born to us and a son is given to us. And please note this because the Greek word here is hearche, the beginning, not just the government. This is the beginning. I'm going strict by the Greek here. To us and the beginning, hearche. That's the first word in Genesis 1, 1. Hearche, n-arche. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. The creation of the universe is the cross of Christ. The beginning is on his shoulder. He bore the cross on his shoulder before the cross bore him on its beam. He bore the beginning of the creation on his shoulder. The cross is the instrument of God in the creation of the universe. All throughout it will be the impact of the cross, the instauration creation by instauration. So it says the beginning is on his shoulder. And that means that the beginning of creation is the cross, which he carried on his shoulders. And that, again, equates the slaughter of the lamb before the foundation of the world with the foundation of the universe or the creation of the universe. 
And notice this, his name shall be called messenger of the great intention. We've said that many times before and elaborated on it. That great intention is the mystery of God's will to what sum up all things in the heavens and earth in Christ. In one who took the form of an infant on Christmas. For I, the Lord, will bring peace upon the rulers. That's what the Greek says, not like your English translation. For I, that means the Lord, Yahweh the Father, will bring peace upon the rulers. That's archontas from the word arche. That means he brings reconciliation on the rulers, demonic and human, Gentile and Jewish rulers, when he makes all things harmonized in Christ. And then all the world. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That is the apocalypse. The apocalypse we should be aware of in 2023. And health. The word for hygiene is used here, but it's hugeon. And it means a state of health to him. God will bring a state of health to this child. What we have here is an understatement of the health in resurrection. He will raise him from the dead, giving him ultimate human health, and we'll all have that ultimate human health in the resurrection. I will, he says, bring peace upon the rulers and health to him. Again, an understatement that after his crucifixion and death, the earth in tohu wabohu, Jesus crucified is the earth in its chaos, in its formlessness, in his resurrection, the new creation. Jesus being made sin and a curse for us. The resurrection body signals the radical change of bodily condition for all of humanity in all of its times and of the entire cosmos and the universe, which will be bristling with eternal life. Then it says in verse 7, which is verse 6 in the Greek, his beginning, hey, arche, is great. That means that the beginning expands endlessly and his peace has no boundary upon the throne of David. David is the one with whom God made an everlasting covenant and his kingdom to make it successful and to uphold it in righteousness and in judgment from the now. That means the nunc stands or the eternal now and into the ages of time. Please notice how he concludes this passage the zeal of the Lord, that's the activism of God, not human zeal or human activism. The zeal of the Lord, God's activism, will do this. The word do is make, poieo, same word used in Genesis 1.1. God made the heavens and the earth. So this child, this son, is none other than he who is to be ruler in Israel, who's going forth or whose procession is from the beginning. Again, ap arche, from the days of eternity. Here we have Micah 5 also prophesying Christmas. And you, Bethlehem, house of Ephrata, though few compared to the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall one come forth to me, one who is to be a ruler of Israel. And his procession was from the beginning, ap arche, again, even from the days of eternity. 
And consider the words of the Son of Man to John on the Isle of Patmos, to the angel in Revelation 3.14, to the messenger, to the messenger of the church at Laodicea, write, this says the Amen, the witness, the faithful one, and true one, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus called himself the beginning of the creation of God. Hey, arche tes ketisios to theu. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world is the lamb slain with the foundation of the universe. The act that brought the universe into being is the act of the crucified lamb, the slaughtered lamb of God. He is the beginning of the creation of God as the Lamb of God slaughtered from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8. This is a Christmas apocalypse. This child, Pideon, again, in Isaiah 53, 2, is identified in Isaiah 53 with Yahweh's suffering servant who grew up like a root out of dry ground who was despised and even avoided by men, who bore our pain and sicknesses, who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed because of our iniquities, by whose wounds we are healed from what is a humanly incurable disease, on whom Yahweh laid the iniquity of us all, who was likened to a lamb led to the slaughter in Isaiah 53, 7, Revelation 5, 6, and 13, 8. So the lamb was slaughtered not only simultaneously with the foundation of the universe, but before in the nunc stands, in the now that stands, in eternity. The foundation or beginning of the universe would mean simultaneous with the foundation of the universe. The lamb that was slaughtered simultaneously with the foundation of the universe. Beyond time, as well as in time. Second Samuel 20 and verse 5. Beyond time itself, in the transcendence of omnipresence, he was crucified. As well as in time and in human history, as an act that redeems history and converts the evils of angels and humans into a supreme good. The lamb is not always suffering and didn't suffer often for our sins in Hebrews 9.26, but suffered once in eternity and beyond time as well as in time. Therefore, the impact of his suffering is not only universal but eternal, not only eternal but historical and temporal, not only universal but personal, interpersonal, in the new covenant community. I call this impact, this universal, eternal, and temporal impact, instauration. Whether it's universal, eternal, temporal, individual, I was crucified with Christ. Individual, personal, interpersonal. Again, this child, this son, is the same as he who, after being forcefully and unjustly arrested, was led to death for the iniquities of my people, says God, and cut off from the land of the living and came to his death for the lawless deeds of his people. 
died for our sins, according to the scriptures, as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, who has made the expiation or the putting away of sins, the sins of the whole world, in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, with Hebrews 9, 26. There are many more verses beefing this up in the printed form. Who has given a grave among the wicked, said Isaiah, who was with the rich man at his death. And I believe that applies to the rich man in Hades in Luke 16, where the rich man opened his eyes being in torment. Jesus took the torment of that rich man and was with that rich man in his death. No one will be in such a place ever, for the son took that. He was given a place among the wicked, who was with the rich man at his death, who was crushed according to the will of Yahweh. And we're going to learn this, I think, in coming days, where we not only see Jesus, but we smell the aroma and the fragrance that wafts from his garments as he passes by. And we'll see that coming up. For when he was buried in a rich man's tomb, that rich man supplied, Nicodemus supplied 75 pounds of a certain form of spice. And that raised from the dead, this one whose throne is forever and ever, has that fragrance emitted from his robes even now. And so there is the fragrant aroma of Christ. It's what we censor bearers carry with us when we preach the gospel, and it's an aroma of death to death. Please notice that, death to death. Not death to death, leading death to death. Death dies. We have the aroma in our gospel of the dying of death. Death itself smells horrific and terrible, but the death of death smells unbelievably beautiful and fragrant. And that's what we proclaim. Both death to death and life to life are good things. Positive message of the gospel in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. And we have these censers. And this is kind of odd, but and it's a little aside, but as you know, at 9.34 this morning in Europe time, which is a few hours ahead of us, Pope Benedict XVI went into the presence of the Lord. He died at age 95. And oddly, the other day I was looking up the word censor, because C-E-N-S-E-R, because I'm doing an exegesis of 2 Corinthians 2, which will be coming very soon. And there was a picture of a censer, and the one holding the censer was Pope Benedict XVI. And I had that open right in front of me this morning in my three-hour final edit of this message. And I usually do a two- or three-hour edit starting in the morning. And it was a picture of him, and then I saw on the, the news app that he is with the Lord. Now, he was ordained the year I was born, 1951. He was a theologian. He was forced to be in the Hitler Youth when he was young, similar to Jürgen Moltmann's experience, and they were both horrified at having to do that. He, of course, believed in Christ. He did away with the idea of purgatory being an endless concentration camp and said in one of his writings that purgatory is the instant flame that is Jesus Christ when he appears, and that burns up all the dross. 
So it's, it's interesting. He's a complicated man. He's Pope Benedict. It just happens to be. I'm, I'm just not saying it for one reason or other, other than to say his picture was on my desk this morning, and now he's no longer with us. But some of the popes were theologians in their own right, and he became a theologian in his own right. He opened up the doors to the investigation of the abuse that was going on of children in the Catholic Church, which was commendable on his part, but he was also maligned and attacked for many reasons, for many of his failures and weaknesses, and I can identify him with him on that, being maligned. If you're going to be in the ministry, if you're going to serve the Lord in any way, you're going to have to endure the hostility of people who hate everything to do with God and everything to do with the gospel. But that's an aside. Call his name, Emmanuel. Call his name, messenger of the great intention. Call his name, Emmanuel. Call his name, the one who died for our sins, and that by the just and mysterious law of the cross, this child, this son, this Emmanuel, will convert all the evils of the human race into the supreme good. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes, eyes that see Jesus now crowned with the glory of the mediator of the new covenant and with the honor of the universal great archpriest who interceded for the transgressors from the cross and continues that intercession for us to make us all saved to the uttermost. Finally, call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 121. By the action of God in Christ, by which the just and mysterious law of the cross, he converts all the evils of the human race into the supreme good, which is the ultimate end denoted by the word redemption. Jürgen Moltmann, who shared in the horrific shame of his countrymen, the Germans, when he realized in prison camp that what was done to the Jews by the Germans, he too was forced into conscription and was put into a battery of anti-aircraft in Hamburg, Germany and watched his 16-year-old best friend have his head blown off by artillery. He went into a prison camp and was treated to very great kindness by his prison wardens and a prison chaplain gave him access to a theological library. Moltmann was so overwhelmed with shame that it was even unto death. And Ratzinger experienced the same thing when they knew what their country had done to the Jews. The shame was almost deadly and fatal. Moltmann, however, was saved by a vision in which he saw countless millions of Jews coming out from the Holocaust into resurrection and life. This was his only hope. He became a universalist, notorious to some, but famous to others of us. And so we have a heritage, a heritage of a universal savior. We see Jesus, who was made inferior to the angels for a little while, starting on Christmas. So that by the grace of God, or as we've heard, far from God, he would taste death 
for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And we'll conclude with this. This is what I call the Simeon Samion. Simeon and Samion, the Simeon sign. We've contemplated this more than once around the Christmas holiday and at other times, each time adding a little more flesh to the bones. But I want to round off the Christmas apocalypse with Luke chapter 2 and verse 21. Not as often is this part of the Christmas event touted as much as the coming of the wise men, the shepherds, the angels, the angelic appearance. This is one of maybe my favorite part of the Christmas apocalypse. Two people were in the temple. One was named Anna. She was 84 years a widow, so she was a very elderly woman. She was waiting for the consolation of Israel, which is the Messiah. There was another person in the temple, Simeon. Simeon was waiting for the consolation. The Holy Spirit, and this year, incidentally, I've, I've called this year the year of the Lord, the Spirit. The year of the Lord, the Spirit, from 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. The Lord, the Spirit, revealed to this old man, Simeon, that he would not die until he saw the salvation of God, the Messiah. And so Simeon saw the Christmas apocalypse. He saw God's universal salvation in an eight-day-old infant, Jesus. Look at Luke 2. And again, Pastor Brown, you and I have both done this passage many times in the past, and I'm just adding a little more flesh to the bones of this passage today. Luke 2.21. Now on the eighth day, that's the eighth day after his birth, when it was time for him to be circumcised. And by the way, a nod to my friend John Kenyon, my best friend growing up. His birthday was yesterday. He said, this morning texted me. I just picked it up on the way in. He was waiting for the birth of a grandson and he was hoping the grandson would be born on his birthday, and he pretty much gave up. They had a family gathering last night. He sent me a picture of Oliver John Kenyon, who was born at quarter of 12 on John's birthday last night. So I have a new and improved ARK with Adrian Richard Knapp, and he has a new, I don't know, improved Oliver John Kenyon. But congratulations, John, and happy birthday, young man. He's a year younger than me, even though we were in the same class. All right, and he's a believer. And he doesn't come to our church, but I won't chide him for that. He lives in Vermont. On the eighth day, when it was time for him to be circumcised, he was named Jesus, which he was called by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. That's in Luke 131, also Matthew 121. And when the days of her purification were fulfilled according to the law of Moses, Jesus, God's son, was born under the law, it says in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time came. This is a demonstration of it. According to the law of Moses, every son, as it's written, is, according to the Torah of the Lord, every male that opens the womb. That means every firstborn son. So, 
Verse 22, when the days of her purification were fulfilled according to the law of Moses, they took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the Torah of the Lord, every male that opens the womb or every firstborn male is called holy to the Lord. The distinction between Jesus and all others who are firstborn, he was made holiness for all of us. God has made him to be sanctification for us all. God with us, Emmanuel, this child, this son. And to give a sacrifice according to what was written in the Torah of Yahweh, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now look, there was a man in Jerusalem with the name Simeon. This is the Simeon Simeon, the Simeon sign. A devout and upright man who was eagerly awaiting the consolation of Israel. And that means the salvation of Israel by the coming of its Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. That's the Lord, the Spirit. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death or die before he would see the Lord's Messiah. He came led by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents of the child Jesus, that's to Pideon, what we began with, the child, Pideon, same word used in Isaiah, to do what was customary according to the Torah regarding him, he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Master, release your slave in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people to see. And we know from right down the road, Leviticus, or Luke 3, 6, quoting Isaiah 40 and verse 5, all flesh will see, and that means experience God's salvation. All flesh shall see or experience God's salvation. Light, he says, listen, listen to this. This is where I got the term Christmas apocalypse. He's still speaking, prophesying. Simeon says in verse 32, light for an apocalypse. Phos eis apocalypsin, to the Gentiles, and glory for your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what Simeon had said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, mind you, this one is destined for the rising, that word is resurrection, anastasin, of many, meaning all in Israel. For all Israel will be saved, as we know. And for a sign, Simeon, there it is, the Simeon, Simeon, a sign that will be spoken against. This means that the word of the cross, a word of universal salvation, is considered foolishness to those that are perishing. A second name for this coming year will be the year of the perishing and of the being saved. The year of the perishing and of the being saved. Both will be manifested starkly in the history of our nation and the world. The perishing and the saved. All one group because of the reconciliation, but the experience being radically different. The year of the perishing and of the being saved. 
as well as first the year of the Lord, the Spirit. A sign that will be spoken against, in other words, and a sword, rumphia, that's the sword that proceeds from the mouth of the Son of Man in Revelation 116, 216, and 1915, the great conquering Christ, will pass through your heart, Mary. The sword, the word that Jesus predicts of his own death, will pierce her soul. As God the Father experienced the dying of his son in an unimaginable, inestimable way, the mother of Jesus also experienced the dying of her son in her own limited capacity. And that's what he said. He was predicting the cross here, and he points to Mary, and he said, a sword, the Ramphia sword, will pass through your soul also. And then he says, and this, this really comes back to, that's kind of a sidebar that he has with Mary. But if you skip that parenthetical sidebar, he says, mind you, this one is destined for the rising in Israel of many and for a sign that will be evil spoken of in order that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Coming up. 2023, watch for the hearts to be revealed. Watch for agendas to be revealed. Power grabs over you to be revealed. The real motives behind false science, false climate science, false medical science, false all kinds of science in order to gain tyrannical hold over you and over this world and over these citizens of this world. And with that, Upstepped persecution against the gospel of Jesus Christ. The sign of the cross is evil spoken of. The more this gospel is made plain, the more it may be resisted. But remember, we have our censors. And our censors proclaim to the perishing the death of death. That's good news to the perishing. And to those that are being saved, Life leading to life, meaning the resurrection life of one Jesus Christ leads to the life of all humanity. For I think it says somewhere in the word, all will be made alive in him. The thoughts of many will be revealed. That's apocalypto. There's our Christmas apocalypse. In a New Year's Eve prediction, the thoughts and designs of many people in this nation will be revealed and already are in the light of the apocalypse of Jesus Christ and in the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in his face into the darkness of many, leading to the saving of the perishing and the being saved of many. This is the year of the Lord, the Spirit. This upcoming year is the year of the Lord, the Spirit. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. And now, Father, create in us a heart of worship as we enter into this most solemn but most joyous occasion together. And thank you for Pastor Messick and his obedience to conduct this service today. In Jesus' name, amen.